Hello, and thank you for listening to the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal podcast. The Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal is co-sponsored by the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators and the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics. My name is Ava Thanheiser, and I'm talking with Liza Bondurant from Mississippi State University and Daniel Reinholz from San Diego State University. Today, we'll be discussing the article, Rahul is a math nerd and Mia can be a drama queen, how mixed reality simulations can perpetuate racist and sexist stereotypes, published in the June 2023 issue of the Mathematics Teacher Educator Journal. We will begin by summarizing the main points of the article and discuss in more depth the lessons they shared in the article, their successes and challenges, and how these lessons relate to their other work. Welcome to the podcast, Liza and Daniel. Can you each briefly introduce yourselves? Sure. I'm Liza Bondurant. I'm an associate professor in the College of Education, and I work with pre-service and in-service secondary math teachers currently in my role. Hi, Eva. Thank you so much for having us today. I'm Daniel Reinholz. I'm an associate professor in the, the mathematics department at San Diego State University. And a lot of my work over the last 10 years has focused on the equip tool that I've been building with Nir El Shah. And so, you know, that was actually what brought us Liza and I together. So we'll talk more about that today, I'm sure. Yeah, I feel like half of the interviews these days are about equip. So that's amazing. All right. So let's get started. Can you give a brief summary of the article, including the results? Sure. So Daniel and I looked at the interactions between some pre-service secondary math teachers and avatar students. We used Equip to kind of quantify the participation patterns. And then we also used discourse analysis to analyze some racial and gender stereotypes that we noticed. And we we uncovered that those stereotypes were, were apparent and that the students who were negatively stereotyped were afforded less opportunities, less quality opportunities to participate. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Liza. And maybe I can just add a little bit of background context. So, you know, the genesis of this article was really due to the COVID pandemic and recognizing that at that time, schools were just shutting down left and right. And I think probably almost everyone in our field can relate to just the impossibility of doing research and just how challenging teacher education became when it was already like a really, really hard thing to do. So I think it's always important to preface like, we love teachers, teachers are amazing, teacher educators, but it's it's just really challenging work. And so I think anytime we bring criticality to that, it's to work as a community to, to sort of enhance what we're doing together, not to criticize folks or call anybody out. And so keeping that in the background, as COVID just took over the world, really, what was happening was, you know, our, our teachers needed field experiences. And so Liza was working with a particular software um, platform. And, you know, this was what this allowed her to do was create this virtual experience for her students, where essentially how it would work was rather than teaching a real lesson in a school, as a teacher educator, you could pick out tasks, you could pick out sample work for students and things like that. 
and then have this actor in the background who would be a college student who was playing the roles of these five different students according to some character profiles, right? So there's a process. The software company initially trains the the interactor is what it's called. And then that interactor sort of trains the next one and so forth. So there's kind of passing the torch to the people playing these roles. And they enact students according to some types of personalities, which we found in this case were kind of problematic, maybe really problematic in a lot of ways is, is more accurate. But in theory, sounds great, right? It's so hard to get into schools. It's expensive. It's time consuming. And so why not have a low stakes way for, you know, pre-service teachers to actually practice and get meaningful practice at teaching before they're doing it with real students. So in theory, sounds great. In practice, what we found wasn't quite so great. Yeah. And since we're sticking with it, and I know when I read the article, I had no experience with how this kind of software works. It seemed like that it is a, a pre-service teacher interacting with a software. And in the software, in your case, there was five students who had different responses to a math problem that the student would have seen before, the pre-service teacher would have seen before, and they're supposed to facilitate a discussion. But the, the five students are all enacted by a person in a background somewhere. Right. And so it's not like it's not just an online animation that is preset. It's some but like one person is actually enacting all five of them, which as I was reading, I was thinking, how would any one person do that? But that's kind of the setup, right, of how this works. Right. And yeah, so the pre-service teachers were given like a task packet. And the idea was that there were three solutions. And I said that two of the students worked on one of the solutions, two of the students worked on the other, and then one student worked alone. And each of the student avatars are like a different gender and race. But yeah, they're played by one college student. So yeah, that's... And the college student is given the information from the software about the personalities of these five characters and then given the information about the math by you yeah yeah like a month before we went over all this kind of stuff yeah yeah and then the the goal of this interaction was to facilitate discussion i'm assuming since the the math problems have already been solved yeah so my initial intention this was a methods class so i was trying to get them using equip to have equitable participation or to facilitate a discussion that has equitable participation. So they had a little cup with the student avatars names and they were going to randomly call on the students names. Then I had them prepare like rigorous questions, you know, that were really meaty that, you know, would higher order thinking questions. So they were, they like had these questions to really stimulate the conversation and they were supposed to equitably call on the students. But then what transpired was interesting. But that's the meat of this whole article, right? It's like, here's the intent of what was supposed to happen. And here's what happened. And this was in a very small simulated activity, which is like you one would think maybe easier to control than like 30 students in a classroom. So, all right. So let's, I'm wearing off the questions a little bit. 
Let's get into summarizing what is the important problem of practice that you're addressing in your article. I can take a shot at this one. And so I think, you know, when we want to think about teaching, especially in the U.S., especially at this moment in history, we have to think about the historical context of the country, right? You know, sort of indigenous genocide or enslavement and, you know, sort of xenophobia and, and just a lot of kind of tragic forms of oppression that have happened over time to think about, well, why do we have racial inequities in this country? Why do we still see often black and brown kids in schools are not being served in the way that they should? You know, why do we see anti-Asian racism that's skyrocketing in the middle of the COVID pandemic? For me, and I think, you know, the work that we're trying to do with Equip is recognizing that although we're teaching and although we're doing this work at a moment in time, this is connected to so much history before us, right? And, and so many folks in our field have argued this. This is not my argument. But so if we keep that historical perspective in mind, then we have to see, right, we have this, this legacy of inequity, right? Or Laurie Gladstone-Billing talks about educational debt. So as teachers, we're just a small part of that system, right? We can't change everything in the classroom when everything else is happening in society, but one could hope that we might be able to move things at least a little bit in a more positive direction or at least practice harm mitigation, right? We want our teachers to be able to give students an experience in math class that feels empowering rather than feels exclusionary or marginalizing. I think there's layers, right? So we can think about simply maybe for a pre-service teacher, you're just trying to figure out how to facilitate a discussion. It's hard to get students to talk productively about math. And then really, we want to go deeper than that, right? Because we have to ask who's getting to talk about the math, in what ways, and how do we build that awareness for pre-service teachers so that they can both notice and then respond to these really deeply entrenched racial equities, but also gender, also disability, you know, also sexuality, also a lot of other systems of oppression and identities that we see. I think that's a really long way of, of summarizing that we're trying to help teachers learn to teach more equitably. And that is everywhere, right? Even in how who you select to share and how you facilitate a discussion. And so that leads us into the next two questions, which I might pull together. So you're building on a lot of existing work. And one other question is, work are you building on? And also tell us a little bit more about the innovation. And because we're, you're using Equip, and we haven't really talked yet about what Equip is, I'm wondering if we can pull those two like a little bit. What are you building on that's already known? And what is this Equip tool that you're using? We already tried to unpack a little bit the this other simulation. So my question is just like, can you get a little bit to the background and the tools? Yeah. So Danielle is probably more of an expert with Equip. I'm definitely more of an expert with Equip than I am, but I will get us started at least. So how I've used Equip in the past was I started by doing a self-study of, I just recorded like my own class. It was the gen ed math class. And Equip is a great way, as I previously said, to quantify participation patterns. And you can look at like not just who's talking, but all it, also the 
quality of the talk. So you could just count that Equip enables a teacher to count who's participating, but also look at the nature of the question and the nature of the response. And you could also quantify the wait time you're providing and a whole bunch of different discourse dimensions. So that is the work that we're building on. As you alluded to, Ava, there's multiple publications using Equip. So I'm super proud to be a part of this community using this tool. Yay! I don't know if I've addressed some of the stuff. Daniel, do you want to piggyback on that, add anything? Yeah, thanks, Liza, for sharing your experiences and for offering that. I think, you know, one of the things I want to offer is is maybe just a little bit of history about how that project even started, because that's not something that you get from reading an article. And so, you know, wow, looking back about 10 years ago now, Nero Shaw and I were sort of fresh out of grad school at Berkeley. And, you know, we had worked together as grad students. And one of the things that we knew was that we wanted to try to do something really practical with our research in a way that we felt could have an immediate impact both for teachers, but also just for students in the classroom. Like we didn't want to, I think theory building is really important, but we wanted to do that theory building in a way that would have an immediate impact. And we never wanted to build an observation tool. (laughs) I'm just going to throw that out there. But somehow that became the thing that we did. And it turns out, you know, there's a lot of observation tools out there. There's a lot of fantastic tools. But, you know, if maybe if you've gone through this process yourself, when you're building a tool, you really have to choose one specific focus because you can't capture everything, right? So Equip is tuned specifically to equity, recognizing there's other things in the classroom that we're going to miss. And actually, there's just other issues related to equity. We focus specifically on participation, which is one component, but by no means is that the only thing that matters. And by no means does Equip necessarily tell us how students in the classroom feel. So there's there's inferences, but it does generate concrete data. And I think, you know, when we started building the tool, there was really nothing in the field that we were aware of for an observation tool that attended to equity explicitly. It was always sort of in a passing way. So we asked ourselves, could we build something where equity was front and center as a focus? And now, you know, over time, other tools like the EARME that Joni Wilson and others have been working on and other things have started to develop, but that's more recent. And so Equip, essentially, the way that it works is we decided that as a tool, rather than looking at the classroom as a whole, we were going to disaggregate everything. And so that meant that anything that we were going to code, we would tag that alongside a particular student. And so this could be the type of thing a student says, how much they say, whether the teacher called on them, if, you know, if the teacher, what kind of question the teacher asked, how the teacher uses student ideas. It's a customizable tool. So probably over the years, like we've probably used about 20 different things and others have used things that we haven't used. But generally what we find then is if we, if we're connecting our coding process to the student alongside demographics, then we can, we can generate things, data that tell us things like, What's happening for women in the class or what's happening for Latinx students in the class or what's happening for black women in the class or, you know, what's happening for disabled emergent multilingual students. So like these are types, all types of things that we've looked at in different studies. And so we can have this specificity and granularity around participation that helps us see the subtle and the implicit and sometimes hidden things, right? So over over the many, many years we've been doing this, 
we've looked at hundreds of classrooms and we see very similar patterns of gender. And we're not the first to observe this, right? Sadker and Sadker and others have also quantified gendered participation in the way that, that boys and men dominate math spaces and other spaces. We can see the racial inequities. And again, you know, others have done done some of this work before us. And really, we've just systematized some of the prior work. I think that's been our contribution with Equip is to try to be systematic so that others could use the tool as well. Thank you. That was an amazing explanation. I think we're ready to jump in now. I just want to also share that I think both Liza and I, during a recent conference we attended, were particularly counting and noting how many men were interacting with speakers after presentations, especially sometimes in groups that were especially designed for women and gender queer groups. So I've said before, I'll say again, once you use the Equip, it is in your brain and you can't undo that. So let's jump into the research questions, because what makes your study a little bit complex is that you have these two tools, right? One is this like software that you're using with the five students and your pre-service teacher interacting. And then the other one is the equip tool that you're using together. So now that we understand both of them, let's kind of jump into what, what you were studying. Sure. So yeah, we had two research questions and one was, how did the mixed reality simulations reinforce or disrupt dominant racial and gender discourses in mathematics? And then the second one was, how did the teacher candidates interact with the simulated students, for example, through asking questions? So let me see if I understand the difference between the question. Is the first one focusing on the software and what comes through, sorry, the simulation, what comes through it? And the second one focuses on the pre-service teachers? Precisely. Okay. All right. So let's jump in. What did you find? I'll do the first one and I'll let Liza do the other one, if that's okay. Sort of the first thing we were looking at was really trying to understand just the types of behavior, right? And the way these characters were portrayed. And so here we drew on a, a post-structuralist perspective that Neryl Shaw and some other folks have, have brought into mathematics education, you know, build really drawing from Foucault and others as kind of this legacy of scholarship. And what we found was mathematics is probably one of the most highly stereotyped disciplines out there. I'm just going to throw that out there. There's stereotypes elsewhere, but people know the stereotypes about math, right? I think the draw a mathematician study where you ask kids to draw a mathematician, you sort of get this very, very present idea of sort of this, I don't know, angry old white man or kind of disheveled or, you know, not really with it kind of stereotypes. And then there's also stereotypes about Asians or Asian Americans in mathematics as just being math geniuses, right? And a lot of folks have written about this in the literature. And on the flip side, you know, even if those are the having those as prominent stereotypes sort of positions folks that could be women, that could be other students of color as sort of not good at math or not competent, right? So the stereotypes function in different ways. And what we know there's like tons of research on it could be stereotype threat or teacher expectations or classroom participation patterns. 
microaggressions, right? There's all this vast literature that shows that stereotypes are not just like mean ideas or false ideas about students, but they actually reproduce inequity in classrooms in really concrete ways. And so what we wanted to understand was in this context, was the software or more accurately, was the enactment of this software through a particular person playing these roles was that reinforcing stereotypes or what could that actually disrupt stereotypes, which is what we would hope for. And I'm just going to say like sort of as a preface, you know, there was one student that was basically unanimously identified as a white woman by the students and the other four students were considered to be racially ambiguous students of color. And sort of if you follow like the profile, the actions, and even the name of one of the students who we use the pseudonym Rahul, very clearly Asian American boy. And so when we look at the interactions, the white girl follows white girl stereotypes. The Asian American boy is like the math genius. And then the other three students are all sort of disruptive or just disrespectful. Like one of the girls is on her cell phone, like threatening you about Instagram followers. There's actually one of the kids is like hitting on the teacher. It's just actually gross. Like I just like it's so offensive. And so just really, it was really upsetting to see what we found in the characters behaviors, especially when this is intended to be a program that's like empowering future teachers to be good teachers. And then we expose them to these harmful and disgusting stereotypes in the behavior. So after we witnessed that, then of course we did what all, well, hopefully what most researchers would do, we said, okay, what other analytic tools do we have to understand this phenomenon, deconstruct it, try to improve what's going on? And that's when we, we engaged in the equip coding. And I'm going to let Eliza talk about that part. Yeah, thanks. So we used equip to address question two. And so we coded the interactions between the teacher candidate and the student avatars. And the discourse dimensions that we focused on were the total contributions by talk type and then the teacher solicitation type. And I will say that Equip, one of the things that I love are that you it produces data visualizations on one of the tabs. And those are in figures in the article. And I encourage the reader to check those out. You know, picture tells a thousand words. But yeah, so overall, the negatively stereotyped student avatars were afforded, like we think of quantity and quality. So lower opportunities to participate and also lower quality opportunities to participate. And their contributions, you know, were less. So those stereotypes were just reinforced through the interactions. So one thing I wanted to bring out as well, because I was really curious about is in your class, and this happened in like a sequence of methods type courses, right? Yeah. You also had your students before they interacted with this, you had them do like a different bias test. So you allowed them to really focus on what is my general bias and then how can I counteract some of that potential? Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Sure. So I foregrounded this work because as we said, we talked about previously, like the intention of this was for them to do facilitate an equitable discussion. 
So we had to first start with like, okay, what are the, as Daniel said, historical view definitions of equity? Because, you know, words are profound and people have different interpretations and definitions of words such as equity. So we looked at like different historical movements and how they have defined equity. So we started with that and then we defined implicit biases. And as we've had other conversations, the three of us about implicit biases, sometimes students can get very defensive or people in general can get very defensive regarding implicit biases. But we used the Harvard Implicit Association Test and that's cited in the article, but to look at, we did the gen, you can do them based on a bunch of different identity markers, but we did gender with STEM professions. And then we also did a racial one and I had them do them. And then we kind of unpacked the results because as I said before, the initial, it's like a gut punch. You're like, oh my God, <laughs> you know? And so we, we discussed that and there is a table, I think it's like table one, in the article where we share the results of those tests. And we discussed in the class, like, this is just a mile marker along your journey to become a more equitable human being and teacher. So I encourage them to like, hey, try this in the future. I've taken it more times than I can count, you know? So we just... And we didn't try to associate that at all to how they facilitated their discussion. That was not the the intention of this article. You didn't. But what I really liked is that it is a good way to begin a discussion about implicit bias and where you might stand and how that might play out in different ways. So I just really appreciated reading that. So I want to make sure we get, get to it in the paper. So to summarize the findings, we found that the avatars potentially enforced racial stereotypes rather than disrupted. And we also, when I say we, it's funny how I'm putting myself in your study. You found (laughs) that the free service teachers potentially inequitably offered participation. So it's kind of like a double thing, right, from both ends. Exactly. And I think, you know, we don't have the research design to to establish causality here, but I think we can see pretty clearly that because the negatively stereotyped students spent most of their time being disruptive, teachers spent most of their time just managing their behavior rather than engaging them in math. And on the flip side, they spent time with sort of the white and Asian student as like asking them, what do you think about math? How are you reasoning about this problem? These types of things. And so, I, you know, we're not going to go into it here, but I really encourage folks. We actually have a full transcript from one of the conversations in the article. So you can definitely go and read that. And I think you'll agree that Honestly, even if we didn't do all this fancy research and analysis, it's it's pretty clear what's happening in that conversation. So one thing before we get to close out with contributions and stuff is one of the things you highlight throughout the paper is positionality. You talk about your own positionalities, but you also talk about who gets to impersonate which characters and like, can one person impersonate multiple characters, never mind multiple 
racially diverse and gender diverse characters. So can you take a little time to talk about those ideas? Yeah. Since this article, I have positionality so important to integrate into all of my work. And Ava, I don't think there's any way possible that one person could accurately represent anyone other than themselves. Even someone with the same identity markers as me, I would not want to try to impersonate them. And like, yeah, I find it really offensive if someone with different identity markers, personally, I can only speak for myself, would try to impersonate someone with my identity markers. So yeah, I think, you know, from the disabilities movement, they, the, the, the phrase of nothing about us without us. And just from speaking with some of my collaborators who are Black, who are different, have different racial identities, they're just like, they're really offended that someone, you know, with different identity markers would try to, to try to play them. And it's like a no-brainer that it, how could this possibly work? Uh, just to add, first of all, thank you, Ava, for that question. I think it's really important. Right. So I think for me, when we think about, as I talked about earlier, sort of the historical context of just legacies of racism that that exist today and, and legacies of sexism and ableism and many other isms in our country, like, and then we recognize the fact, right, like, we're three white people having a conversation here on a podcast. Our field is majority white scholars and things are changing slowly, but that's still the case. And the majority of teachers in our country are white women, right? So when we sort of look at that, we have to recognize there's things that we do in white culture that sometimes we accept as a norm and that might work in some spaces and that could be problematic in other spaces or we have to think about what does that mean when we're enacting other people or taking other roles and i think that's sort of what the heart of some of this work gets at is like what is to me it's like what is our place given our positionality and i think for white folks in math education i'll just speak to that audience like we have really important work to do right we have really important work to do thinking about sort of histories of oppression in our field and also making space for other perspectives, elevating the perspective of folks of color in our field, elevating that work and and just sort of being able to notice and name and disrupt the kind of problematic stuff that we see in a study like this, right? Like as a white person, when we call out racism, it's like uncomfortable, but it's not putting us at risk, right? It's not making me feel that I might be harmed in some way. And so I think really like we got to have skin in the game too, that we can actually make things change or, or I just don't think things are going to change. And we're not doing it alone. And it's, you know, we have to work in collaboration. But I think recognizing when we really recognize our positionality, it allows us to think about what is our place in a movement for racial justice in math education. And I think there's certain things that we ought to be doing and that we need to be doing. And then also recognizing that in some cases, maybe something is not our place, right? Maybe there's spaces that we don't need to be a part of. And that's also what it means to be doing this work. So it's tough. I don't have the answers. It's an ongoing lifelong work in progress. But I think that reflection and that critical reflection is something that we really need as a field 
because, you know, right now it's not the inclusive space that we would hope for it to be. So thank you for getting into that. And I agree with you, Liza, that I think I'm not sure that you can present any work without positionality, because that is how you see and do the work, right? So I really appreciated both that you had the pieces in the paper, but also what Dan just talked about. So let's wrap up slowly with reflecting on what is the contribution that this paper or your study makes to the field of mathematics teacher education and what can we take from this? for our own practice and research? So I would maybe, I'll just get started. For for me, pushed me and motivated me for future projects to use a participatory design. I'll also say that through my work with Equip, my own personal definition of equity has evolved. So I used to kind of define it as everyone participating the same. But now I really do see it as, as Daniel said, due to the historic oppression that certain groups have experienced, I feel like there's a necessity to afford even more quality and quantity of participation opportunities. So those are like two ways that it's impacted my work as a practitioner and researcher. Let me ask you to elaborate a little bit when you say more participatory. What does that mean? Yeah, so... For example, a current project that I'm working on, we have secondary students of color contributing to some vignettes that we're having teachers do the professional noticing, attend to, interpret, and respond. So we had previously written these vignettes just based on teachers telling us these stories from their own anecdotal experiences, but now we also have students contributing to these vignettes. So the participant would become like a co-investigator with you. So you're positioning them as instrumental in the research process. And they'll also be involved in like the analysis and interpretation and and whatnot. So there is a design. Yeah. And there's a really nice paper for those who are interested in this in I think the November Jeremy, right? Yeah. Dan, did you wanna add something? I'll be brief. I think there's two, I'll just give two takeaways. One, I think this paper is a kind of a story of unintended consequences. When we do something that we think looks really exciting and great and interesting, but we don't think through what the negative impact could be. And I'm going to just leave that spin on things. I think I want to assume positive intent gone wrong. And I think the other piece for me is we have some of these tools, you know, the implicit association test, equip. And what it allows us to do is actually generate these types of data for reflection on things that are very hard for us to see. And so not just this study, but kind of the work we've been doing over the past 10 years that we found, you know, if you have the data and you have a supportive community, it's actually, you can make changes and you can make changes with measurable impact on students. So I'd love to see more folks in our field doing that. You know, we have been building out a network of people who have been doing that. I invite you to join us. I invite you to learn more. But really, like, you know, I think one of the most useful things that we can do as teachers is record ourselves and watch that video and cringe most of the time because it's just painful. But go one step further, record yourself 
have that video and then why not code it with a quip or another tool and and see what you find because i think that's a real object for reflection that none of our classrooms are perfect i've equipped myself many times and sometimes it's a little scary but unless we know unless we build that awareness we can't do anything about it yeah and i want to add a little bit too i also have used equip on myself and i have found it extremely powerful and there is no perfect classroom right because there is perfect for certain goals and different goals might lead to different so i think like we also have to let go of the notion that there is this one achievable goal but there is ways to make things more equitable for more people as we move through. All right. Well, thank you both for joining me today. Thank you so much for having us, Ava. I really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you so much for providing this platform to elevate this important work. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And before I close out, I just want to nod to at least one other article in the same issue that has also used Equip in a much briefer form and the podcast of that is going to come out pretty soon as well. So there is different ways. If you cannot commit like a whole lesson or something to equip, there's different ways that you could use that tool just to get entry. And I also want to second um, both Dan and Liza's suggestion to download the article for the visuals, to read it too, but for the visuals and for the transcript. And with that, for further information on this topic, you can find the article in the Math Teacher Educator website. This has been your host, Ava Thenheiser. Thank you and goodbye.